Hello and welcome to another episode of the Innovation on Main podcast brought to you by the University of South Carolina College of Engineering and Computing. Are you an undergraduate student down here in the Southeast that is considering pursuing a graduate degree in STEM? If so, you should definitely come to the GEM Grad Lab October 4th and 5th. We know how hard it is to pay for school these days, and at this lab, we will teach you how to apply for graduate funding so that you don't have to pay more than you should for your next degree. Plus, this event is completely free and even will have meals provided for you. Space is limited, so search GEM Grad Lab on Facebook today for more information and sign up as soon as possible. For today's episode, Mike Sutton is joining me to tell his story about beginning the now internationally successful company, Correlated Solutions Incorporated, and all the twists and turns on his path to doing so. Now, I don't want to steal his thunder, so I'm going to keep this introduction short, but I just wanted to start with an example of what in the world a digital image correlation machine does. So, here we go. Say Boeing wants to know how much the metal in its airplane cabin stretches, compresses, and deforms when it's highly pressurized. Of course, they can create models and simulations predicting what would happen to the plane. But they have absolutely no idea if that's actually what will happen. That is, unless they have a digital imaging system from correlated solutions that can track in real time how the metal deforms based on the pressure the fuselage is experiencing using its high-speed cameras and advanced software. Okay, now outside of this example, there are a lot of unique ways that the technology is also being used like measuring how well a lotion from Procter & Gamble actually removes wrinkles and how the tires in your car deform when they hit bumps. But I've already gotten a little too carried away and have definitely said too much already. So let's hear a little No Way Jose and get this show on the road. Well, Mike, thanks for coming on today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Now, is this the first podcast ever for you? It is. So, what do you what do you think coming in? What are you expecting? Oh, just an opportunity to talk about things we've done over the years and uh, get a get get some sort of feel for the people out there about what we've accomplished and where we're going. Cool, cool. Well, I'd love to get talking about where we are going and what you are doing. Um, how does an engineering professor like you? who never planned to get into business ever. How does that come about? Yes. Well, that's a a bit of a story. Um, We got into it primarily because we had done some work with the uh, aging aircraft aircraft program with NASA Langley uh, in the early 90s. And about 95, we did some tests at Boeing, uh, first ever test done on a Boeing uh, 727, showing that the technology we were developing would work. And once we finished that, we went back to Langley and asked them, uh, did you want to take this on as part of your portfolio because you have rights to it as a federal institution? And they eventually declined. And uh, which surprised us, but they did. And we came back to USC and uh, the university also declined because they felt like if NASA wasn't interested, they probably didn't want to do it at that point back in the early 96 time frame. And so we had a colleague at the Air Force Research Lab in Dayton ask us, "Can we need this system now. Can you build one for us and do it? And we said, well, we can, but we'll have to do it from us, a private company because the university nor NASA is interested in doing that. 
So we started the company in 97 uh, with only one goal, transfer the technology from the university uh, to the Air Force Research Lab so they could use it. And that's where the company started. So it was kind of a, a mixture of different things that came up that ended up with us starting a company. We weren't really interested in starting a company. We really wanted to do research and scientific inquiry, but we didn't have a choice at that point. We, the technology we felt was really good and we wanted people to start using it. And out of that came what we have today. So, so on that original test with Boeing, what were they wanting you to use your technology to look at? Well, Boeing was just curious. They, they really didn't understand what we were trying to do because it never been done. And so they gave us the uh, entire 727 aircraft uh, for a whole week with, with a whole uh, technical, technical crew to allow us to do the test. And their interest was, can you get anything out of this? Is, is this technology really going to be something that's useful? Uh, on the other hand, Langley, uh, NASA Langley and Charlie Harris, the chief scientist at Langley later in his career, uh, was interested in us showing them that it could be done because we've already done it at Langley and they knew it would work. And so it was kind of a mixture from that combination. We realized that it was going to be something that we had to prove to them. And uh, out of that, eventually uh, we were able to show that it did work. How long did it take for you to step into a room and have people believe this technology is going to work? <laughs> That's a good question. I think it took at least five years. Uh, when we first did it in the late er, late 80s, early 90s, nobody believed it. When we started doing it in the 90s for, for the university audience, they were kind of, well, yeah, but it's really slow. It's difficult to use. We don't see that this is going to go anywhere. But the technology was basically going from film to digital. And the power of the digital technologies today are so pervasive that we knew that this was something that was going to work. So we kept on it. And so even though people didn't use it much in the early years, we knew eventually it was going to take off. And it did when technology in the 1999 timeframe uh, became something that we could afford small portable computers. All of us could. It took off. But up until then, from the early 80s when we started to the late 90s, we simply had to go time and time again to people and say, look, this is working. And eventually people over time, including Boeing, began to realize this was something that could transform the world in the, in the sense of measurements. And today it does. The technology today is the most pervasive measurement technology in the world. So what's it measuring today? It's a video-based technology. If you have a if you have a small CCD camera or a CMOS camera, a digital camera, like most of us have digital cameras that we use for our own photography, think of having two of those, stereo like your eyes. Those cameras are mounted and digital images are acquired under controlled conditions, and those images then are analyzed. And out of that, we measure the motion of the object. So as it moves in space and time, we measure that and record it and then analyze it to give accurate, reliable data to people that want to know what's happening. So that's what we do. In the aircraft, we measured what was happening on the side of the aircraft. As it deformed under the internal pressure that they were providing to it, we, we were able to measure how it ballooned out and how it distorted. And it was the first time it had ever been done with video cameras. And now how big 
is Correlated Solutions now? You've said successful. Yeah, it's a, it, it, it's it has, it's an international company now. We have uh, distributors in in Asia. Uh, we have distributors in Canada, Australia, um, worldwide. Um, has it, it has about fifteen to eighteen people in the United States. Uh, that is the home office, and the home office of all places that are, is in Irmo, South Carolina. So it's a it's it's kind of a homegrown high tech industry that does things that are very unique uh, worldwide for measurements. Cool. Have you ever have you ever considered how different this whole thing would have gone had NASA taken the patent back in? Well, we, you know, we didn't because that's that's history now. Uh, should they have done it, they would have had to deal with the technology expansion and growth. And and we never, you know, I, I've talked to Charlie Harris a couple of times, and he didn't really want to talk about it because, uh, frankly, he's he's realized what's it, what it has become, and uh, they could have done the same thing. But it is a government agency, and they're not really in the in the business of doing commercial development uh, for anything. So it probably was for the best that they didn't take it on at that time. Uh, they may, may do it today because uh, all government agencies have changed, but uh, it's hard for me to look back and say what would have happened because we just, we just had to go. I mean, it sounds like there was a lot of times where people said, Oh, this isn't going to work. This isn't going to be as big. Did you ever think it was going to get this big? Uh, no, uh, we did it for one person. Remember, this was done for the Air Force Research Lab. And then another one came up and another one came up and so forth. It, it slowly grew over time. Uh, we are much more interested in the technology and the science of it to help people do their jobs more than we were the business part of it. So the business has continued to grow and expand uh, primarily because it, it, it is such a, a remarkable technology. I don't think it's as much to do with our business acumen as it is to the technology is so good. Um, and, and that part of it has allowed us to expand and, and employ more people in the state of South Carolina and, and show people what is possible with this technology worldwide. Uh, but no, we never really thought it would get this big. No. Well, you mentioned a lot how it's in the state of South Carolina. What is it like developing this international company, this world altering technology at the University of South Carolina in the state of South Carolina. I mean, this isn't Silicon Valley. This is here. Yeah. Well, that, that has been uh, part of the, the interesting part, uh, the interesting aspect of, of developing a company is you have to find the right people. A company is its people. The people that you hire have to do the job, have to do it well, have to do it effectively. If you don't, the technology won't grow and expand. Uh, fortunately, uh, We've had some outstanding people that we've been able to hire uh, from the from the University of South Carolina. Uh, Dr. Hubert Schreier, my former PhD student, runs the company, and he's he's brilliant. He's simply outstanding. Uh, Dr. Stephen McNeil, a, a faculty member here at USC, also was part of the company, and so are two other students that were uh, took my classes and took a, classes here at USC. Uh, two PhDs. So we, we have good people, but it's always been difficult to find enough of them. Um, we aren't, as you said, we aren't Silicon Valley. So a lot of people move on to other places seeking 
opportunities that they think would expand their their horizons more quickly. But we've kept good people, and uh, we're, we we feel good about where we are. There's always hope that we'll find even better people in the future. But it has been a bit difficult to get enough people. Um, the University of South Carolina always has good people. It's just the number of them as compared to Silicon Valley that we have uh, less than others. Uh, but they're still good. And if you find the right ones, you can make progress. And we continue to make progress, uh, primarily because of Dr. Schreier. He stayed the course and kept moving forward, finding the right people and pushing the technology. And working with him has been a real real joy because he and Dr. McNeil and I have continued to push the boundaries as we move forward. So Dr. Schreier has been pushing the company forward. Mm-hmm. What's been your involvement with the company yeah. since... 2000. Uh, yeah, most of mine has been for a few, uh, looking out. Uh, I, I'm you would call me the visionary, if you will. I try to see where we're going, what we're, what's happening in the world, why is the technology where it is, and what can we do to to expand the technology. So uh, I'm the chief science officer for the company. Have been for for since its existence. Um, and the focus has been looking out to see where we, what we can pick up, uh, the volumetric image correlation, which measures what happens inside from CT scans. We can actually measure how your bones are deforming inside of you. Those kinds of things. Those are things that I identified years ago. And then the company, Dr. Schreier and his colleagues took it, converted it into software that we now use to analyze CT scans. And for special cases, we can get really high-quality measurements of what's happening. Composite materials are that way. We did some beautiful work with other people at AFRL again, uh, looking inside of composite materials as we deform them, because now we can see inside inside with CT scans. And the software that we've developed is state-of-the-art. So all of those things come from just looking at where things are visiting people, talking to people at conferences and scientific uh, gatherings and, and finding out what needs to be done and where is the current state of the art. So that's been my primary focus. I still work with graduate students at USC and we hire some of them still uh, to work at the company uh, after they're graduated. Uh, but it's, it has remained primarily on a scientific basis of looking out. So where what's the future for the field now? What's the future for the company now? Where do you yeah. see it going? Well, right now the technology is, is moving what I call the integration phase. Um, the technology that we're developing, the measurement technology we develop, is permeating into all the industries, the tire industries, the aerospace industries. Um, uh, all different government labs now have these this technology. And as a result of that, they want to speed things up. They want to make things happen quicker. How do you do that? You take the technology we've developed and you integrate it with software. And those simulation platforms are what's driving the rapid growth, the increasingly rapid growth of the penetration into those markets with the technology we've developed over the years. So what happens is they they take a, a component, maybe a, a part of an aircraft. They deform it under controlled conditions. They use our technology to measure how it's deforming. But they also have a computer program that simulates how it's deforming. But it's not right. So they have to modify it to match the data. And by modifying the program over time, they develop a very robust platform and they don't need our measurements anymore. Now they can predict what it does other under other conditions that they haven't used in the laboratory. 
And as a result, their simulation platform allows them to speed up development because the software to run the simulation is much more efficient than trying to run a series of experiments, even with the technology we've developed. So what's happening is this integration of measurements and computer simulations is driving the future speed up of production and understanding of a physical phenomenon that, for example, if a bridge fails and you want to know why it failed, then you load it up and you make measures and say, oh, well, this technology showed us that's the weak point. We need to modify the bridge. And they take their software, they analyze it. We're not predicting that. So they have to improve their software. And then they modify the software and then the bridge to try to come to grips with the problems they're seeing. So it's, it, it, it's this integration. That's where it's going right now. From a, from a, I guess from the standpoint of the company, we, we need to continue to improve the software and the measurement technology as much as possible so that we can further enhance, speed up the process of, of industries and government labs and universities solving difficult problems. So we're still pushing that boundary on the technology um, and, and trying to make it easier to integrate our, te- our measurements with their software. What has it been like for you seeing something that started in 1980, mm-hmm. only working on metal and with no one believing it, to now going into the biomed field, the biotech field, working on tires? What's that like for you? It's, it's, it's been, a, a, I guess it's been a, a little bit eye-opening. Uh, when you when you see what you're doing on a day-to-day basis, you tend to focus on that. And then when you see other people in the world taking it and moving off into a totally different direction than you ever imagined, it, 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 you kind of step back and go, really? They're doing that. Uh, but the fact is they are. And so it's been a bit surprising, a, a, a little bit uh, a little bit disconcerting because sometimes you don't see it. Sometimes you realize, oh, after the fact that they did that. Uh, It's the same way with the volumetric image correlation. We had done all the early work, and I had told people that this could be done in volume, but we just hadn't got around to it yet. And lo and behold, out of nowhere, a fellow at Oregon State, uh, Professor Bay, uh, did it. And I was fortunate enough to actually see his first article. He came to me. He asked me, what do I think? And I almost fainted because I realized that all the things we had done, this guy had shown it could be extended directly to measuring what's inside of things. So as this happens, it sometimes is a surprise. Sometimes you just step back and go, whoa, that's really cool. Because now things are, are moving in directions that I didn't even think of. And when that happens, you feel good about it. You realize that you've made an impact. And, and, and frankly, for most faculty, that's what we want to do. We want to do things that improve the lives of people, make it a little bit better uh, to for, for companies and organizations to solve problems. Great. Well, looking forward, say, 10 years, is there a spot that you hope maybe this technology can go, or is there no way to predict that? Uh, well, what I think is going to happen down the road is that there's one area that it hasn't penetrated yet, but people are trying to work on it, and that is standardization. Um when you make measurements, right now it's in, it's in a research environment. People do it to understand what's going on, but you can also do it in a production environment. If if a car is being tested for crash worthiness, then they could take our system and measure how it deformed when it was impacted. But right now it's not standardized, 
So that data that we give them, it's certainly useful in their research to improve the car, improve its Christworthiness, but it can't be used in any sort of legal manner uh, to demonstrate that they have they have improved the product based on a standardized approach that's been approved by government. So that's where it's going. It's become so pervasive that they're now developing standards, standard ways to use the technology so that people and government agencies and and, and companies can make measurements with it during the production and say, we met this standard, therefore it's good. So that's where it's going. It, it, the standardization will take a, a decade. It's a very slow process, requires a lot of careful study to be sure people know how to use it and use it effectively. And I think that's where the, in the future people will see the standardized digital image correlation method uh, as part of ASTM, American Society for Testing Materials, um, ASCE, American Society of Civil Engineering Standards, for how to test things, how to validate things using this technology. Cool. Well, before we get to the Beyond the CV segment that we started yep. last episode, is there any last words you'd like to leave our listeners with? Any message about the technology or where it's going or the effect it could have on them? Well, I, I'd, I'd like to go just a little bit away from that. Not much, but okay. a little bit. And, 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 and comment that people, when people get involved in something, like we got involved in this, uh, di- development of the digital and cor- correlation method, the important part is perseverance. You have to stay on it. When people around you are working hard and they ask the question, well, are we making progress? Are people understanding what we're doing? In the early years, we, we didn't get that. But we, we had to have faith in ourselves. We had to persevere. We had to stay on something and get it done. And I've always been good at that. The people around me have been good at that. We know we're willing to take the time and effort to push things until it is shown to be effective by others. And so I think for a lot of people, when you get into difficult problems, you must persevere. You have to find a way to keep going, to push the boundaries any way you can, so that once you get to a point and you suddenly realize that people are beginning to follow what you're doing, then you can step back and say, yeah, I stayed. I didn't quit. I didn't give up. I didn't move on. I kept going because it was the right thing to do. And I think that is one thing I'd like to leave with people. That, uh, there's always this kind of uh, uh, time and times in life, whether it be a scientific inquiry or even personal things, that you, you tend to get down on yourself. Um, we never did that. We stayed because we believed that this was the right thing to do. And it turned out we were right. Uh, and and I, I firmly believe that that's an important part. I, I, I instill that in my students. If you really think you're right, push it. Don't wait for me to tell you yay or nay. Push it yourself and prove to yourself that it works or doesn't work. Because if you don't, you're always going to wonder, well, could I have figured that out? Uh, on the other hand, if you do do it, then you begin to develop confidence in your own understanding and your own comprehension of what's really good and what's bad. I could not think of a better ending <laughs> note to put on that. Um but with that, I'd love to get to the Beyond the CV segment. Sure. Um, this segment is brought to you by the U of SC Career Center, your go-to place for finding meaningful work at the U of SC College of Engineering and Computing. This career center is here to help you with more than just your resumes and is hosting the Advice with a Slice from September 16th through the 23rd to help you prepare for the upcoming career fair. Check Handshake today for additional details 
and I hope to see you there. Well, for this segment, I like to ask our guests a question that has them not talk about their work or what's on their resume or their CV, but to push them kind of beyond that, to learn a little bit more outside of the walls of Swearingen, outside of the streets of South Carolina. Um, so Mike, here's the question I've got for you today. What's your favorite thing to do when you're outside of work? Yes. That's uh, a good question. My interest is in an area called terrascaping. Uh, for those that know uh, a bit about farming, a bit about uh, working outside, working in the natural environment, terrascaping in, in, in the way that I'm doing it is modifying the way land is being used to try to convert it back to what it might have been decades or hundreds of years ago. And that's what I'm doing in the small property that we have uh, outside of Irmo. Uh, we're actually putting in um, some of the original prairie that was here in South Carolina and in the Midwest of the United States um, as a way to demonstrate that you can keep things uh, that are beautiful and maintain them. And if they are not there, you can find a way to put them back. Um, so uh, from a naturalist standpoint, I've always enjoyed doing things that try to make the world a little more natural in the way that it is being used. And so that's what we're currently doing. We have a small organic farm uh, at our place and around it is going to be this prairie area. So I enjoy that. It's a lot of fun. Uh, keeps me uh, busy in the evenings, that's for sure, after working on technical problems. It's a kind of a way to get away and, and uh, do something entirely different so you refresh yourself. So that's my, uh, that's what I do, uh, I guess, is a uh, uh, a way to relax as well as a way to make a little bit of a, a positive change in the environment. That's awesome. Where are you in the process of turning it? <laughs> the first part of the prairie is in. It takes about three years to, to convert um, uh, what used to be uh, just desolate uh, weed strewn areas into prairie. And we're a year or about eight, nine months in. Uh, it'll take another two and a half years. So this is, again, something you have to persevere. You have to stay on. If you believe in it, you can do it. And this is one of those cases where I believe in this firmly. And so we're going to stay on it until it gets done. And maybe when it's all done, people could come and visit and see what it looks like to walk through a prairie. Yeah, you'll have to send us pictures when it's all said and done. But thanks for coming on today. I think this was great. Um, and thank you to all our listeners for taking a few minutes out of their days to give us a listen. If this is your first time tuning in, uh, try going back and listen to a few of our other episodes. We've had talks about AFP machines. We've had talks about batteries. We've had talks about DC energy renaissance. Uh, a lot of really interesting stuff. And if you're a day one listener, then I can just say thank you. Really appreciate it. Um, hopefully you aren't too sick of my voice yet. Uh, well, that's all for today. Until next time. Thank you. Thank you.